to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Connecting you with experts and trendsetters who are leading innovation in law enforcement, private security, and personal protection. And now, your host, Adam Wills. Welcome back to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast in episode 29. On today's show, I will again be interviewing therapist Lauren Rich for the third and final session of our mental health series. I have to chuckle a little bit about this session because I suspect it will play out more like you are getting to be a fly on the wall in my own therapy session. But don't worry, I promise I don't cry on the show. Our focus for today's episode is on transition from law enforcement to the private sector or copernewership and some of the inevitable challenges that are faced when leaving a career in law enforcement. As stated in previous episodes, there will be some adult content, so please consider your audience while listening to the show. And if you haven't yet listened to episodes 27 and 28, I implore you to go and listen to those first and then come back to this episode. All right, here we go with my last interview with Lauren Rich. Welcome to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. We have Lauren Rich on the show again for a third time. Uh, we're, we're really excited because we are going to pick up right where we left off. But first, I just want to say, Lauren, welcome back to the show again. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for being on and sticking with me. And, and uh, I, I would presume that by this point, everybody that is here for episode three is here on purpose. They they didn't just stumble on this episode and decide to listen to it. They're here because they listened to the last two. They weren't bored out of their minds, even though we're talking about mental health. <laughs> and they and they've decided I am coming back for number three because I am interested to hear what Lauren has to talk about as it relates to transitioning out of law enforcement and my mental health. Boom. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So- <clears throat> Boom. So let's start. You said where we left off, which I think was with being a workaholic. Yes. So naturally, so many of you in law enforcement take double or triple shifts, whatever that may be. And um, then you end up leaving or retiring and you don't know what to do to fill your time. A lot of you and and my you know, my cop cousin included, uh, is a copernewer on the side. I think everybody probably needs a side hustle, but um, he's got three or four side hustles. And so he is constantly busy and somehow still raises two kids. I don't, I don't understand that. Um, well, I do. It, I, it's just workaholism. But, you know, when you think about that in transition, you're going to have to find something that, per, again, provides purpose and fulfillment. That's our number one goal. Our number two goal is steady and stable income. And that will come, in my opinion, once you find the, the job that actually provides purpose and fulfillment. But you have to remember that when you when you leave law enforcement, there's going to be a huge, almost grieving period where you have to figure out who you are as a person. Because for so long, you have just identified yourself as a police officer or a fireman or, or paramedic, whatever that may be. And now you really have to figure out who you are. Who, who am I? Who is Adam? 
you know, what do I enjoy? Can I, can I tolerate my family? Can I take family vacations? You know, what, what can I see myself doing and, and how can I take my natural talents and my career talents and meld those into a new future? And that's, that can be a struggle for people. Oh man, um, there's a floodgate. Um, <laughs> there's a floodgate happening here. As as I just thinking about the things to talk about here because this is, well, I guess this is endless. fresh in my memory for one. Yeah, yeah but there's there's so much truth to what you have to say, and and I want I want to share some some personal things. But I gotta first say, Lauren, like I I, uh, I don't believe in accidents um, and and you know putting people into your life, and I I. I have been very grateful to have connected with you, but also just, I mean, it's, um, it's been a really good relationship for me. It's brought a lot of self-awareness for me about my transition out of law enforcement. And, um, I shared at the end of the last episode that, you know, I struggle with that workaholism and, and still do the transition to being a cop and starting my own business and working from home came with a lot of like a floodgate of different challenges that I had to, to endure and deal with that I really wasn't prepared for. I kind of was looking at it through rose colored mm-hmm. glasses at first. You know, I thought, you know, man, I'm going to go from committing, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of, of the year to my job. Because as undersheriff, I was on call all the time and I was working a lot mm-hmm. of hours and I thought, Oh man, this is going to be great. I'm going to work from home. I'm going to get to do what I want when I want. And then the the realities of that came in. And I do love that. I love working from home, but I also have to deal with the challenges of everyday life of parenting and my children that I didn't have to deal with before. And don't get me wrong. I love my children, but I used to be able to just go to work, right? And those things still happened when I wasn't at home. And then I come home and, you know, I'd get to, to, to interact with my kids for a few hours, you know, during dinner time and when they went off to bed. But now I've got to deal with all of those things all day long. And for those of you stay at home moms, like the, you know, they're people are, they're just chuckling, I'm sure right now, but, but there's, there's challenges there. And I've, I've shared this before on the podcast. I don't know if I shared it with you, but I'm, I'm going to reiterate it now for anybody that hasn't heard. You know, that, that identity change was paramount for me and identifying that sense of purpose. When I came home, my last, my last shift, my last day as a cop, I came home, I took off my, my, my gun, my sidearm, my Glock, and I put it in the safe on my dresser as I always do every night. And I am a huge proponent of concealed carry. Okay. I believe that if you are trained to do so and you have the will to do it, you should carry concealed, whether you're a cop or not, off duty, and, and you should you should carry concealed. I struggled literally every day after that last day with pulling that gun back out of the safe and putting it on. Because it felt like there was it was to wear that gun on my side was part of my identity as a, as a police officer. And I no longer had a right to, to possess that identity. And so I struggled with that every day, putting that back on because of what it represented for me in my mind. And it took me like six months 
before I was actually able to pull it back out and start and start wearing it again, which was a long time. That first six months was hard for me in that because I struggled to find out my purpose and my identity. Before I ramble on longer, I am sure you have things in your mind that you want to respond to about that. Well, one is I would say these are, are generally jobs that we keep for decades, you know, 20 at minimum. Some of you have been in longer than 30. And so to think that it's going to be an easy transition overnight uh, is just simply not even, that's not even reasonable. And the same thing goes for military people. You know, I should have transitioned by now, Doc. I've been out for three years. Well, you were in for 31. So let's take this into, you know, let's scale it, shall we? And so it's, it's going to take a while. You know, life is not going to be necessarily comfortable like it was before. And you'll have to find a new role. I think the largest role, though, is realizing um, that you're not the behavior police anymore. And that when people do something that you don't agree with or breaks the law, it's no longer your job to correct them and inform them that what they're doing is wrong or a violation of the law. That's not your job anymore. And so, you know, that's, that's a totally different piece than actually having to find purpose and fulfillment. You know, Part of the issue that I see with people when they initially come in and in the first couple sessions, you know, they whine and, you know, how fucked up am I, blah, 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 blah. And um, normally my response goes a little something like this. And and sometimes I even touch them on the the hand or on the shoulder or, you know, whatever that is. And I I look real softly into their eyes and I say, Adam, this is the one and only time I'm going to tell you this. You are not fucking special. You are like everybody else who struggles, who has symptoms, (laughs) who doesn't know who they are. There is nothing unusual about what you're going through, you know? And so in that instance, you need to be talking to other copreneurs who have already left and gone before you, um, who have already learned the hard way, or maybe they would do things differently. Take advantage of their knowledge and and hit them up and say, I want to leave the force in two to three years. What would you have done differently in your final two to three years that I should be aware of? Uh, Maybe join a community (laughs) of like-minded individuals. Other Maybe. copreneurs, shameless plug mm-hmm. there. Sorry. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes, You're absolutely. absolutely right. and, and who in my community can you connect me with that will help me be successful? Um, but this takes a lot of diligence. And if you're too busy avoiding life and living at the bottom of the bottle, I don't know that you're going to be able to accomplish that. So you have to make things a priority. If you want to be successful as an entrepreneur, you're going to have to lay the foundation before you leave. Don't don't please. Oh my gosh. Please don't leave without a job or income of some sort. Um, you will end up depressed. You will end up with no purpose and you will have no direction and, and no one wants to live there. So before you actually leave the force, make a plan, you know, take the, take the six months, take the two years. I, I had planned on leaving the VA for two years prior before I actually pulled the trigger. And granted, it took me a while to get all the pieces of the puzzle in place, but that was so advantageous because I was able to leave and I rolled right into a full-time practice where there was no lag in income, um, where I already had referral sources, where people already knew about me. I already had a website. Things were already established. And when you're able to do that, it will be a whole lot less stress on you and your family because unforeseen things like pandemics can really throw a kink in people's business plans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, so the interesting thing was, I mean, I had, 
I had plenty of time to prepare. Um, you know, my, my business was, was, uh, uh solid, uh, I, I'd say, I mean, that's probably the best word I can come up with, but, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't leave with nothing. Okay. But mm-hmm. I really struggled with the sense of purpose. And part of that I'm sure is because what I'm doing now for all intents and purposes really has nothing to do with law enforcement. Okay. It, more so now than it did when I, when I first transitioned out, but, I really struggled with that. And, and, uh, uh, man, God bless my wife for her patience. Cause that first six <laughs> months, I no, I'm serious. It's you rough. know, I, yes. it was hard for me because, and I told her this, I told her, I said, you know, I, I'm struggling to understand what my purpose is anymore. And sure. Mm-hmm. I, I like what mm-hmm. I'm doing. I enjoy working for myself. I'm making more money now than I ever did as a cop. I'm working from home and getting to spend more time with my kids my family. I have the flexibility of running my own business. You know, those are all good things. And I'm like, I, I, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing, but there was this lack of purpose. And I'm like, what, what is, what am I doing? Right? Like before I could get up every morning and be like, okay, today I'm going to work on this case and I'm going to put a child molester in jail. Right. Mm-hmm. Today I am going to go, you know, there was just, I'm going to go arrest a bad guy. I'm going to go try and break up this dope ring. I'm going to, there was always a mission. Yes. Yes, There was always a mission to accomplish. Yes. You have to figure that out. And, and I, like I said, I would encourage everybody to figure that out before you get out. And part of the workaholism may be avoidance, but the other part is if you're an entrepreneur, you're just a naturally driven, high achieving individual. And I try not to do a whole lot of work at home. Um, I still end up working 50, 60 plus, maybe more hours a week. And um, my husband and I, we own, we own two businesses. You know, he farms and runs the orchard full time. um, And that's a different type of workaholism. And then I have the practice to run. And That's simply how high achievers are. Their brains never stop. They're always thinking about what they want to accomplish and how to get there. And that's an okay thing. We just want to make sure that we're doing it out of being a high achiever and not necessarily doing it out of avoidance of symptoms or past trauma. Yeah. Well, I part of what I want to respond to there too is I don't want to put a false burden on anybody to you know, Hey, figure out what your sense of purpose is, man. You know, mm-hmm. like get it, figure it out. Like it, it doesn't necessarily come that easy. It's not something that should be, uh, d- don't put a false expectation on yourself that, you know, I'm going to be able to figure this out right away. Cause I know I, I didn't, it took me a while and it didn't click for me until I started working with clients that were in the public safety space themselves or, or were also former cops. And that's where it really clicked for me. And this podcast was huge for me. And so, you know, like the Leota CEO uh, has really reinvigorated my sense of purpose, uh, helping other cops do the same thing that I, I struggled to do and overcome those challenges of transitioning out of law enforcement, starting their own businesses specifically, and growing a successful business to six figures and beyond. That is my sense of purpose now. And that's my tribe. And I'm like, hey, I get to help out my own tribe. And and so now my sense of purpose is reinvigorated. And that that has been huge for me. And And I just, again, I want to stress, I don't want anybody to have false expectations. It might take you a little bit of time to figure out what that sense of purpose is. Don't expect it to come immediately. And a, a lot of you, you know, you've had um, 
Oh gosh, this is terrible of me. What's his nose? The um live nine one one guy. Golly. Chula Vista. Oh, what is Fr- his name? Fritz Reber Fritz Reber. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. you know, you take him for example, and in, in in his creation and, and being a copperneur was to simply solve a problem. You know, he identified a problem and he came up with a really great solution. And so some of you will transition into um, private security or whatever that may be. I have people who, for example, um, did, you know, very specific intel work or missions or maybe um, munitions work in the military and they transition to a defense contractor. And so part of it, you're going to have to ask yourself, do I even want to be in this realm anymore or do I want to find something completely different? And, And that will vary by person, of course. But sometimes those new transitions are easy to slide into. Um, and so then you're no longer a government or, you know, department employed, uh, person and, and you're, you're working as a third-party contractor and things like that, and you have a lot more freedom. And so I would at least give those job opportunities a chance because I think you would be shocked at how quickly you can grow as a professional by working in the private sector and seeing what they're doing versus what government was doing. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So if you don't feel like you're ready to jump into the entrepreneur world, go work for somebody who does similar work, you know, live 911 or drone work or, or Raytheon or, you know, Northrop Grumman. Learn about business. Yeah. Learn about, learn about business, learn about Mm -hmm. client and customer interaction, learn about uh, bookkeeping and, and uh, how to, how to focus on profit and revenue. And there's lots of things to Mm -hmm. learn about business that are, are awfully, awfully important. Mm-hmm. Go Absolutely. go pick up go pick up Business Made Simple by Donald Miller, and that will open your eyes to everything you need to know. It's it's essentially a MBA in sixty days. So go pick that book up, or if you can read it faster than sixty days, then you can get it faster than that. Mm-hmm. But w- what other things do you see cops struggle with after they're transitioning out of law enforcement? Well, I think sometimes um, it's a marriage issue. I feel like that's a very large one. Now that they're not gone all the time and they're actually, you know, around their spouse, they may discover that they don't like each other or that they're not compatible, quote unquote, anymore. And so sometimes those are personal struggles that we have to deal with after we've discharged or after we've retired. You know, ma- mainly I would just say the identity piece, um, finding new purpose. And and really, I think another struggle might be that you're going to have to find a new social circle and the struggle will be people don't get it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't fit in. Um, they're all sheep, so to speak. And and there's no sheep dogs anymore. Where's my sheep dog circle? And I will say on my story brand end, I chewed up and spit out five coaches before I found you because they were all snowflakes and I couldn't get anywhere. I couldn't get anywhere because no (laughs) one was speaking my language um, and no one was speaking the language of my clients. And so it may take you a while to figure those things out, but be patient with yourself, you know? So if it takes a while to find a new social circle, that's fine. If you, if you are struggling with substances, um, this is going to be a really hard time for you because you're going to be going from very occupied to very unoccupied. And that's a dangerous place to be if we have an alcohol problem, a sex addiction, a pornography problem, whatever that may be. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I could tell you one of the things that uh, really kind of took me by surprise that uh, I had to kind of 
deal with and probably and to some extent I still am it was that I almost had to rediscover who I was after mm-hmm. I left law enforcement and I wasn't I wasn't prepared for that to to be something I would need to do but it it kind of dawned on me one day that I was now a different person than I was back before I started in law enforcement and even in my early days of law enforcement and for whatever reason I had never recognized that up to my last day in law enforcement. I I hadn't realized how much I had changed over that period of time. And I think that was just because I was so immersed in what I was doing and being part of my sheepdog pack and and just putting on the uniform every day and getting after it and saying, well, that's just who I am. That's what makes me up. And then all of a sudden now when I'm separated from it, I'm like, okay, there's things about me that I really used to like about me that I'm having a, a hard time reconnecting with and how do I get those things back? So like my, my fun, loving, happy, go lucky attitude, which I feel, I still feel like is there, but I'm not as in tune to it as I used to be before I was a cop where I was just able to, or I could just go do anything and, and not have a care or worry about it and, and have fun no matter the circumstances. That's, that's a struggle for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it will be, I think one other struggle is, uh, hobbies. What do I enjoy as a person? Cause I'm so used to working doubles or triples. I never had, t- I never had time for hobbies. You know, do I enjoy basketball games? Do I want to be a YMCA coach on the weekend? Do I like fishing? Do I want to do it enough where I enter tournaments, whatever, whatever that may be for people. But, um, we have to have things that are just ours and no one else's remember that just yours and no one else's. So if it's fly fishing or uh, deer hunting, whatever that may be, um, race cars, carpentry work, boy, you want to talk about some expensive hobbies. My gosh, gunsmithing, hunting, and, and carpentry, I think are the top three most expensive um, in, in my in my wife opinion. And so you can, you know, you can sink five grand into carpentry and woodworking and lathes and lumber pretty easily, you know, so figure out what you like. And and that's where passion is, in my opinion, you know, find something that you're passionate about in, in that sense. Um, volunteer work, you know, church camps. If you have a youth police academy in your town or in the county, or maybe you want to start one where high schoolers, uh, sit through a week of what it would be like to go through a police academy. I went through two when I was in high school, a local one and then one at the state trooper level. And I loved those. I thought they were great. I thought they were a great time. So if you want to volunteer for that or start that, you know, that would be beneficial for kids in your area. You know, find something. Make make your time here on planet Earth, the remainder of your time here on planet Earth, justifiable. Because simply existing, like I've always said, simply existing is not enough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's certain, there's lots of ways to plug into uh, your community in a way that, that, that connects with your background in law enforcement. And, and I think that's really important to, to seek out those opportunities, not just wait for them to present themselves, but to, to actually seek them out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Re- and if you reinvigorating that, you that wanna- sense of purpose. Yes. And if you decide that your purpose is in barbecue grilling and you want to go to championships in the tri-state area and get yourself a little trailer and smoker, by all means, you do that. If that is what helps you get out of bed in the morning and you feel good about that and it's an, it's an honest and upright act, then by all means, 
go do that. And uh, and don't listen to what anybody else has to say. Yeah, for sure. So I, I can remember back, uh, one of my very first FTOs told me something that just stuck with me throughout my law enforcement career and obviously to this day. And he told me, he said, if you want to, if you want to survive, if you want to make it through this career, have a plan to kill every person you meet. And, and while, you know, I've, I've shared that with a couple of, of people, sheeple, if you will, and they were horrified by that statement. Um, but, uh, I mean, there, there's, there's certainly a reality to it and, and there's an application behind it. Maybe it's a, a little bit extreme depending upon where, you know, where you work. I mean, there are some parts of this country that are war zones or worse than war zones, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, that statement plan, have a plan to kill every person you meet is demonstrative of this. It's demonstrative of this mindset that law enforcement has where we are constantly on guard, right? Everywhere we go, we're looking for the next threat and we're analyzing everybody and everything. We're checking corners everywhere we go. And when we go to the restaurant, we sit with, uh, you know, our facing the door and right. And so how being in that environment for 15 years and always being hypervigilant, how do you overcome that or do you overcome that? Or does that just become a part of who you are and you recognize it and accept it and go forward with that once you're in civilian life once again, or is there a way to uh, change that? Well, one thing is, do we want to change it? Do you, do you even, does the, do you know, do you as the retired officer even have a desire to change that? Is it a problem? Does it interfere with something? Uh, There's a couple trauma treatments out there that, you know, for example, let's take prolonged exposure. They have you create a list of things that you avoid or that create high anxiety. And in the process of going through trauma work, they expect that you're going to confront these things. And, and one of those simple things is sitting with your back to the wall or where you can see the door in the restaurant. And personally, for me, when I started out doing that, I, I kind of saw the purpose in it. Okay, I get it. We're working to not feed into the symptoms and, and I'm for that. But does it really matter? Does it really matter? Is it interfering with life if I sit on a preferred side of the booth? Yes, the treatment modalities, the entire goal is to overcome trauma. And and that's a piece of it is confronting irrational ideas that were always unsafe. But again, is it a problem? Am I okay with doing that? Is my spouse okay with doing that? And and I'm not going to lie to you. We go to the Mexican joint and I stand there. My husband gets the pick of seats when we go. That's at every restaurant. I always let him pick first and I don't mind. It's not a big deal. It just, it is what it is. And if it it makes him more comfortable, then what's it really matter? And so I think to a certain extent, you have to pick and choose, you know, what's really problematic for you? What's really problematic in your spouse's opinion? What do we, what do we want to address? The hypervigilance piece has been so ingrained in you that if you, let's say on a zero to 10, Let's say that you sit at about an eight all the time. I would say, yeah, we need to work on that. We need to get that down to a manageable three or four. But if you're already working and living at a three or four and you just have a little bit of heightened anxiety when you're in public, those things actually keep you safe. You know, we don't want to completely disarm you, so to speak. And I tell my guys who are on repeat deployments, like my Department of Army program that I work with, they are such repeat deployers that in between deployments, we don't necessarily work on major trauma. We just work on everyday life issues because I don't want to send them back out there 
having taken away this skill set that helps keep them safe. And so to a certain extent, while it may be a detriment at times, it also keeps us safe, quote unquote, or maybe safer, helps us detect threats. If it gets to the point where we are falsely detecting threats all the time, or we're to the point where we legitimately think that living in that place will prevent bad things from happening, we probably need to confront those irrational ideas. Because the bottom line is it doesn't matter how hypervigilant you are, it doesn't keep bad guys from being bad guys. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. I mean, it's uh, it's not something that's detrimental as, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, at least that, that part of that hypervigilance, unless it's, you know, overdone, like you said. Mm-hmm. But- you don't want to take away a skill set that is benefiting you or in in the case mm-hmm. of law enforcement especially it's benefiting the community right so even if you're That's a right. retired cop you know you go to the you know, applebees and you decide to sit mm-hmm. facing the door so you can detect a threat well just because you're not a cop anymore doesn't mean you're any less uh viable to address uh whatever threat may come through that door bring harm on everyone else. You may give up your badge, but you're still a sheepdog. Yeah. 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 That, that won't change. I don't know that you can undo that either. I think some people, and you know, either you're born a Marine or you're not either you're born a sheepdog or you're not those types of things. And so to a certain extent, are we asking people to be something that they're not? And, and again, again, in, in love and advocacy of good men all across America is that men are wired to be protectors. You can't undo that, nor should we. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I, I think it's, uh, it, it's disappointing that, unfortunately, society is trying to tell us otherwise anymore mm-hmm. that that's- That's right toxic masculinity, right. but, um, yes. but you're right. Yes. You know, we, we are wired that way and, and not, it's not mm-hmm. just me. I mean, they're, they're some of the best cops I know were, were female. So I don't want to mm-hmm. leave them out of this conversation either and make it, um, just about, uh, men, but, but yeah, I mean, just because you leave law enforcement doesn't mean that you're not a sheepdog anymore. That's right. That's right. And again, our experiences make us who we are. And we have to value and cherish those and give them the respect that they have earned. And so um, I don't know that you need to change it unless it's a detriment. And and you'll probably mellow over time. I, I suspect you will. Um, I've had veterans that have mellowed over time, but it... <laughs> It takes a while. And um, I think one of the struggles after you're out of police work or after you're out of the military is that a lot of you just end up in random fights for no reason. And I think it's just this alpha male come F with me stamped on your forehead or something. I'm not quite sure how that ends up happening. But I I think sometimes the shit birds, so to speak, out there will pick you out of a crowd because of your stature, your demeanor, the way that you present yourself, and then they want to go rumble. I think I could speak to that a little bit. Now, I haven't, mm-hmm. I haven't, I haven't gotten myself in any fights since I left law enforcement. But if I'm being honest, I've wanted to, right? And I think part the of that is was there. Yeah. Well, and regardless of the opportunity or not, I've thought about it. Like, I and and. Uh, I mean, part of it is I used to box as well back when I was uh, a cop and part of that was to keep in shape, but it was something I enjoyed as an outlet as well. But mm-hmm. um, I think 
I don't think necessarily cops get into law enforcement for the purpose of chasing an adrenaline rush or an adrenaline high. But I think eventually the longer you're in it, the more you get used to that adrenaline rush. And um, I, I could tell you, I've struggled with not having an outlet for that. And I'm still trying to figure out what that outlet is. And there have been times where I just, I want to get in a fight with somebody just because I want an outlet for it. And, yes. you know, at the time, interestingly, when I was a cop, I was always trying to avoid fights, right? Like I, I don't want to get in a fight because I want to go home safe tonight, right? Mm-hmm. Not that I would shy away from the opportunity when it came, but now I've, I've, I've had it on my mind sometimes where I'm like, I almost think back to some of the fights that I have been in, in a more glorified manner than what I did when I was still on the job because I I'm like, I could, I could use a fight like that right now. Like I just want to go get in a fist fight with somebody and get in a brawl because it would feel good. Like I'd get an adrenaline rush out of it and it would just feel good. (laughs) And, and that's not abnormal. And so sometimes we are, um, we have risky behavior because we're seeking out the adrenaline. Um, and sometimes it's just because of unresolved trauma and everybody looks like a threat. You know, even if they're not, everybody looks like a threat. I, I had one guy, oh man, precious Marine, loved him. Three-time deployer when he was enlisted and then went back as a defense contractor three more times. And so we're talking um, a total of probably six years of his life, maybe five, where he was over there, Iraq and Afghanistan, major trauma. And, um, he's, I remember him saying one time, I'm just waiting for the next motherfucker to piss me off so I can knock their teeth in, you know, I am ready to go. And, um, some of them describe it as if it's an electrical charge in their body all the time. And eventually what ends up happening and in my professional opinion, post-trauma, once it's stored in our nervous system is that we have to externalize it in some way. And so we just need to make sure that that's a healthy way. We need to make sure that that's not our boss, our wife, our children, or any any, any other human that's not, you know, voluntarily involved. And so if you can find something like jujitsu, boxing, where you can externalize that energy and you can still get your high, so to speak, the new externalizing of energy, the new high, the new chase, so to speak, of, of chemicals is never going to be equal to chasing down a druggie on the, on the streets of Chirac. That, that just is not going to happen. There's too many variables to make that extra exciting. So if you can go to the gym, if you can immerse yourself in jujitsu, uh, martial arts, boxing, whatever that may be for you to externalize that energy, by all means, go do that. And, and if that still isn't enough, go get your A card, go jump out of planes, go join three gun shoots where it's timed and and you have to race against yourself, you know, find something that still provides you with that outlet, knowing that it will never be identical to what you've already experienced. I've, I've been tempted a time or two to see if my Honda pilot can go 130 miles an hour, but I'm guessing you would say that's probably not a healthy outlet. (laughs) Well, it depends. It depends on where you are. Um, are the kids in the car? <laughs> are the kids in the car? Yeah, yeah. I mean, probably not. I'd prefer that you just go jump out of a plane. That would be my preference. Um, I'm, sure I'm not sure insurance- I could actually get up the guts to do that, if I'm being <laughs> really honest. Yeah. Well, find find something 
But yes, it's people, guys will describe it as if I'm carrying around an electrical charge um, and I'm just ready to rumble at any time. And so part of that is because of your heightened anxiety, but the other part is because of the chemical chase and just a lot of changes going on. So be very patient with yourself. Be good to yourself. Um, If you're married to a cop, please don't retire at the same time. Please, please, please. (laughs) <laughs> just um, let somebody go first, wait a couple years, and then let the let the second person um, retire. But don't do it at the same time. It's too rough. Yeah, I can see how that would be a powder keg for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I don't think I would have ever described uh, it that way on my own, being like carrying around this electrical charge. But I can see now after hearing you describe it that way, I can see that. <sighs> And I, and I would describe it that way now myself as well. One of the best things you can do for your business is adopt a value first approach. What do I mean by value first? Well, a value first approach is when you focus on delivering value to your audience before you sell to them. Now, this might seem a little bit counterintuitive, so let's talk about that. The traditional selling approach is to present your products or services and give your potential customers an opportunity to make a purchase. Think of it like walking into your local Under Armour outlet. Did you know that as little as 2% of potential customers are actually ready to buy from you when they first interact with your business? If you're only focused on selling, then you're missing out on all of the potential customers who weren't quite ready to make a purchase when they visited your website. This is where having a value-first philosophy can be a game-changer for your business. Start by simply creating authentic content that speaks to the problems that your audience has. You don't need to be cheesy, catchy, or spammy. Just be you. Remember, your vibe attracts your tribe. Creating content that acknowledges the problems your customer is trying to solve will help them to know that they're in the right place. They know that your business is the one that can help them. Value and authenticity are the secret sauce. As long as you stay focused on those two things, you will outshine your competition every time. Check out every episode of the Marketing Minute at psi.chat forward slash marketing minute. So one question people have a lot of the time is how do I find the brotherhood? Is is that kind of something that you could speak to a little bit? Did you, did you, how did you uh, supplement, so to speak, once you got out? Well, I mean, I don't think I figured that out quite honestly until very recently. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, th- I think, I think the challenge behind that for me, especially is that I live in a really, really, really rural area. My nearest neighbor is a mile away. Uh, the nearest grocery store is 30 miles away. Right. And so, um, we live here on purpose. I mean, I like, I like living out in a rural area like this, but it doesn't make it easy for me to necessarily connect with, you know, a group of people, um, like that. And so that was a challenge for me. I really missed the camaraderie and the brotherhood and, and, and being able to come together for a singular purpose. And I wasn't really sure how to gain that back. And it really kind of fell in my lap because of this podcast and being able to start connecting with other copreneurs that are transitioning out of law enforcement, starting their own businesses or wanting or have already transitioned out and are, are trying to grow a business and being able to start the Leo to CEO community that really, to me, that that's, 
that's brought back that sense of camaraderie, brotherhood, sisterhood, uh, and feeling like I can reconnect with my pack again. Mm-hmm. So one one easy thing is, you know, like the Leo to CEO programs or the, the vet to CEO or, um, you know, my, my husband is involved in, but not deeply involved in the farmer veteran coalition. And we live in a rur- very, very rural isolated area as well. No internet, not because I don't want it. It's because it's not even out there. There's no, <laughs> there's no company um, that works out there. And, and so, yes, isolation is definitely a problem. But if you are in the business world, I would say for sure, find that farmer veteran coalition, find that, you know, Leo to CEO group that can help you grow as a as a business person and entrepreneur, I would be very, very cautious. And I hope that the world has learned that the internet connection is not good enough for people, that isolation will kill you. It'll make you more depressed. And Corona is proof of that because before Corona, everybody said, oh, we can do it on Zoom. We can do this and we can do that. And Corona, if it did nothing else, it proved that people need human interaction. We cannot survive without it. And so if you can find somebody like in your business group or whatever that may be, even in the tri-state area, if you can meet halfway for lunch or half a day of meeting or whatever that may be, do that. I would say if there is a retirement group around or retired FOP officers or the the local um, shooting club or the golf course, whatever that may be, a lot of you will will end up there. I don't recommend places like the bar and bike gangs. Those are definitely (laughs) not my top recommendations. Um, While a different type of brotherhood, it will not, it will not help, you know, serve your purpose. And and the other thing is you're actually going to have to make the effort. Don't expect that these things will come to you. You know, you're going to have to reach out. The veteran community has a crap ton of uh, nonprofits. Um, Just because they're a nonprofit and just because they're run by a veteran or law enforcement officer doesn't mean that they're of quality. And so if if you don't like it, if you're not happy with it after about six times of attending, then don't go back. But I don't want to hear anybody complain that they went one time and they didn't like it. One time is not good enough to get an accurate assessment or judgment. You have to actually give it a chance. Yeah, agreed. I've said it I've said it on the show here a number of times. Isolation is the enemy of excellence. And mm-hmm. I truly believe that uh, is the case. I mean, you uh, you can't isolate yourself, especially when we're talking about transition. And you you, you just because you're not an active law enforcement officer anymore doesn't mean that you can't still be part of the pack or a pack, but to isolate yourself entirely is, is very, very, very detrimental. Mm-hmm. I, I would completely agree. And as a solo practitioner, you know, I, I do everything in my office. I'm the janitor. I'm the biller. Um, I spent two hours on the phone with Medicare before I got on with you. And so I'm literally doing everything. The problem is I don't see anybody else throughout the day. And so I have a couple colleagues that we get together once or twice for um, lunch or dinner throughout the month, just to visit with each other, see each other face to face, talk about um, cases or things that we struggle with. You know, how do I be creative? I've tried this, I've tried that. Um, Because when you work alone, that can be really, really hard to make new connections. So just remember that, yes, isolation kills. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to I want to circle back to something that you mentioned in episode or session one, I guess, with you. That, oh, now now uh, we're in session? Yeah. 
Ah, ah looky there. <laughs> we are in session. Um, so yeah, since in session one, um, you said something that I think has a, a, a powerful correlation here. And that was that uh, one thing you see that happens a lot of time with vets who are re- returning from a combat zone or transitioning out of the military. They don't know what to put on a resume. They don't know what their skill set is and how that translates to anything else outside of the military world. And I, I see that here as well in law enforcement. Not only did I think that uh, incorrectly about myself when I was transitioning out that I had no other skill set, what else would I was going to do? What was I going to do? And how was I going to relate that to life after law enforcement? But I've also heard that come out of the mouths of other former cops or current cops in the Leo to CEO community that have said the same exact thing. And I have had to respond to them and say, nay, 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 you, you don't even recognize how many skills you actually have from your career in law enforcement. And I think mm-hmm. um, that same challenge presents itself here. So how do we overcome that? Well, first of all, those are all excuses. They are absolutely all excuses um, to take the lazy way out and to not be thorough or it's a reason for somebody not to hire me because I don't, I, you know, I didn't know what to put on my resume. Well, okay, that's part of growing as a person. And second of all, I would say simply start by pulling the job description, compare resumes to other cops. I would definitely, in your Leo to CEO group, I would have them all swap and critique their resumes. And I would be very particular about verbiage and context because I would be putting things like excellent customer service skills. You would never think that, but you have to have customer service skills working in law enforcement. You have to have multitasking skills. You have to have leadership skills, communication skills, you know, thinks quickly under stress, handles high stress scenarios well, was awarded such and such and such and such for creative problem solving or whatever within the department. I mean, the 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 opportunities are endless when it comes to that. And for one thing, I would say, and I I actually didn't make this as a note, but I'm glad you I'm glad you asked. So there's a a book called Strengths Finder 2.0, and it's by Tom Rath, who also wrote How Full Is Your Bucket, which is about thought processes and and negativity and working with others. It's a great book. Strengths Finder 2.0 utilizes strength psychology, and this is how it works: is you buy the little ten or twelve dollar book, or I think you can even do it online now. I've I've had it so long that you bought the book back in the day and there was a code in the back and then you could take the quiz online. <laughs> I know they still offer yeah. that, but I think they offer the online quiz and maybe the digital version. And it will tell you your top five strengths. That comes right with the book. It has 40 of them total. So you can pay a little extra for that. And I actually put those on my resume. And you know what my top five are? Empathy, individualization, relatability, interconnectedness, and whatever the other one is. Yeah, uh, my number 40, yeah, makes sense, right, for my job. So those are things that I actually list on my resume. When I, when I have a KSA section, I put those blatantly in the resume in bullet points. When I looked at the full 40, you know what my number 40 was? What's Discipline. That? <laughs> oh, Okay. Yes. Yes. And so, so I know what I need to work on and I know what I need to make better as a result. So how do you relate or translate shit magnet onto a resume? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, does well with confrontation. 
Confrontation oh. de-escalator. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thought you that got me, sense. huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good job. Yep, that's exactly right. Yes. And so don't ever think that you don't have something to offer. And again, all we're doing is combining natural skill set, natural talents, and career capabilities. Okay. And and in StrengthsFinder 2.0, one of the reasons I love it so much, not just because it's so simple and straightforward and because of the categories and, and how it tells you to work with other people. So for example, it would say high achievers need to communicate this way with the interconnected people. So it's going to give you projects that you can work on with other people. In fact, I would have your Leo to CEO class do this, but it will it will help you articulate and give you verbiage to put on your resume because everything that you have done in law enforcement from answering the call from a dispatcher to dealing with a mom who's upset because she lost her kid in the grocery store is going to be applicable in some form or fashion on your resume. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if I could Mm -hmm. summarize, I think the, the main point of everything I think we've talked about, especially in this session, is that whether we're talking about our resiliency or our mental health or understanding what our skill set is and how that relates to uh, life after law enforcement. It's really all about being introspective and having self-awareness. Would you agree with that? Mm-hmm. I think that's a lot of it. If if we don't have enough self-awareness to know what our problems are, what our strengths, our weaknesses are, then we're never going to be able to correct those. And I always challenge my guys because you know, you have to remember that in the military, perfection is everything. Because in, in some categories, specifically with the corpsmen who are medical or, or medics or the EOD world, if it's not perfect, people die, right? In the corporate world and, and even in farming and, and working in an orchard like my husband does, perfection is the enemy of profitability. When you are so focused on every single detail, you're going to get lost in the weeds, you're not going to be able to be productive because you're too busy worrying about a small a small detail that maybe doesn't have a large impact. And then you're slowed down in your thought process and your productivity. And so remembering that it doesn't have to be perfect. Everybody is a work in progress. And, and then my follow-up question to them is, are we better people when we focus on our strengths? Are we more marketable when we focus on things that we're really good at? Or are we more marketable when we work to correct deficiencies? And I believe that correcting deficiencies is as equally important as highlighting your strengths. That is an excellent quote. Perfection is the enemy of profitability. I I, I wrote that down because, well, I, I certainly think that it reigns true a little bit more in the military side. You said when it's not perfect, people die. And and that, that truth does exist in law enforcement as well. Maybe not, not to that same severity by any means, but there is still a sense of perfectionism that occurs in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And part of that's because we're all type a. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so <laughs> there's this sense of perfectionism. And I think you're right. If that gets carried over into your private sector life, whether you're working for somebody else or running your own business, yes, that can be an asset to you, but it can also be a liability if if, if applied inappropriately. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and in the world of farming, it is constantly adapting, and I I use that because 
you know, when you think about the ongoing list of being a business owner as a farmer and the ongoing list of being a copreneur, some tasks are never fully, quote unquote, completed. They are simply on the list in an ongoing manner. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with not necessarily being task oriented, but being goal oriented. And so your task may not be complete by the end of the week, but your goal may still be reachable. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep, it okay. absolutely okay. does. Okay, and there's a very big difference. There's a very big difference between being goal-oriented and being task-oriented. Man, Lauren is dropping some bombs on the show right now. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. No, no, that's great. You're just um, you're you're just excited for free therapy. <laughs> I am. Thank you. I I, I needed this so bad. Um, your your wife will be excited. Your wife will be excited too. so i mean really what we're talking about here we're talking about resiliency right and so resiliency isn't something that comes naturally to us and and that's kind of that's where you come in that's where somebody like you comes in resiliency doesn't come naturally to us and that's where you come in why on earth would you think that that resiliency doesn't come natural you don't think it comes natural no i mean i think it's a trained i think it's trained Absolutely. I oh, think I think need... you're. I think you're either born with it or not. I don't know that I can okay. teach resiliency. Well, tell me about that. Yeah, let's talk about it. Well, look at look at all the law enforcement careers. How do you tolerate 15 years of bullshit with the public and being beat on and hated on and criticized on social media? What gets you through that? Okay, fair point. Yeah, Keep unpacking what gets that. us through? Yeah, yeah. Well, what gets us through trauma? What keeps us from committing suicide? What keeps us from um, ending up at the bottom of the bottle every single night? I would have to say resiliency. So you would argue then that I would argue that that all of you are resilient to a certain degree. Okay, but certainly, certainly we can achieve a higher level of resiliency through. Education, training, knowledge. Oh, yes. Uh, There's always room for improvement. Right? Yes, okay. always room for improvement. But I think either you're born with it or you're not. And part of that proof in the pudding, so to speak, is that when you see kids come out of awful neighborhoods or awful homes, whether rural or metropolitan, you may have four children in a home and three of them end up on the uh, jail rotation or on the prison rotation, but one somehow is able to be a successful, healthy, functional adult who holds down a job. How is that possible if they're all raised in the same environment with the same poor parenting, with the same trauma and abuse? Yeah. They they must be, they must be resilient. And maybe that core is resiliency. I mean, I I would, I would respond to that by Mm -hmm. saying nobody is a victim of their circumstances. Um, Mm -hmm. We can, we can all rise above our circumstances, but maybe that's because of resiliency. Yeah, I think so. And I think cops and and veterans especially are some of the most resilient. You have to be to sustain a 20-year law enforcement career, a 30-year law enforcement career when you see the worst of the worst happen and yet you still show up to the job committed to helping people. I mean, it's either that or you're just fucking crazy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what are, what are, <laughs> uh, that's another, that's another session, I guess. <laughs> that's a, that's yeah. That's another session for another day. But you know, I mean, you're not, you're, you're not expecting the same result. You're not doing the same thing, expecting a different result. Pardon me. Um, but you know, to, to be committed like that. Yeah. That's exceptional that. And, and that's why you get, not just anybody can be a cop or a fireman. 
or, or in military mm-hmm. service. That's why not everybody can be a combat trauma therapist. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, yeah. you're either made for it or you're not. So, but yes, well, thanks, there's always room for, for improvement everywhere. Yeah. And thanks for, for being willing to tell me I'm wrong. Um, but, <laughs> but, but here's, here's what I was trying to do there, Lauren. Um, you, you don't just see patients one-on-one in your office. You, you spend time doing consult resiliency consulting and coaching and, and speaking at events, uh, working with law enforcement agencies, as well as companies in the private sector and corporate security, private security, that sort of thing. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to really talk about that a bit, what, what you do there, um, and how that translates. What does that look like? Well, it kind of depends on the agency because it's all tailored to whatever they need. And and that originally started when I was seeing a veteran at the VA who's about a GS-15, which is pretty high up. He was the chief of a security division as an Army civilian employee. So he's a veteran. He's deployed multiple times, and now he's an Army civilian employee. And we're doing trauma work, and he goes for a pre-deployment physical. And all of a sudden, all of the VA records are on the doctor's desk. And we realized at that point that the DOD had access to everything that the VA was doing, which meant that his security, yeah, which meant it's a huge deal, which meant that his security clearance was on the line and everything that we had done um, was going to be basically exposed, which is, you know, why we chart vaguely. There's a purpose for that. And so as a result of that, we developed a, a army coaching resiliency program that requires no mental health diagnosis whatsoever. And so we do sessions on not just leadership and career planning and development for people, but you know how to talk about suicide, how to watch your coworkers, how to take care of yourself, how to stay married. And we we also have a one-on-one um, agreement to where they can come see me anytime. Part of the beauty of that is that I am not at their location. There are multiple locations that I work with. And so we just telehealth everything, but they don't have to run into me in the office. They don't have to see me in the hallway. Everything is confidential. And at the end of the month, all that leadership knows is the hours of service that I provided. And so we're doing the very best we can to protect people's security clearance and really their jobs and their their livelihood. I I do the same thing, or at least um, try to tailor things for different agencies. And so if it's private security, um, that's completely different. We have a lot more flexibility because it's not government or defense contractors. Um, those have a lot more flexibility too. And and um, I've even proposed a one that we create almost like a, a QRF team or, or quick, quick reaction, so to speak. Um, that way, when something bad does happen, I'm accessible uh, because they had the same issue. They were calling the EAP team and they were getting a generalist who had no clue um, about their field, their background, their employees or anything like that that. And I'm sure this defense contractor in particular has a a set of challenges because of what they do. But I'm sure other agencies have the same challenge that if something bad happens, or if someone is suspended, or let's say someone even commits suicide, an investigation is opened up. And so now we have not just the coworker that we lost and the suicide to deal with, but we have to go through their things. We have to go through their desk, through all their emails, through all their documents. We have to ensure that nothing was given to any foreign entity. We need to um, clarify whether or not blackmail was ever involved. And so somebody may die in February. They may kill themselves February 1st, but the investigation continues through September 1st. And that's exhausting. 
That's absolutely yeah. exhausting. And if you think that losing a coworker isn't bad enough at suicide, let's try tacking on an investigation into critiquing their work and how they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm, so, I'm assuming that that's not just within the company that that's taxing, but on correct. family members too, to know that, correct. that, that I mean, they're, they're dealing with this, uh, this traumatic experience of a, of a loved one who's taken their own life and yet they're mm-hmm. under investigation of sorts. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, all the way around, that's a challenging, uh, that's a challenging experience. Yes. And so the, a lot, a lot of times the, the, the briefer or more brief trainings that I offer are simply on resiliency how the company can take better care of people, ultimately um, increasing retention and decreasing attrition, um, saving them, you know, money essentially in in the long term. For those who have extra special needs um, like security clearances, it's more of an ongoing basis where they can contact me anytime. Um, if there's an issue, drop whatever I'm doing, go to that location, take care of it, get out of their hair. Nobody sees me again for six months to a year. And so we've kind of got two different two different pieces that help complete or help meet that company's needs depending on on what they are. Okay. So if I'm, let's say, let's say I'm a, a manager, a leader, a, a director of a, a corporate security team at uh, you know a company like uh, Amazon or Google or Disney or Facebook, <laughs> Scott Walker and Carlos Francisco, <laughs> I can. What sort of help can you offer? Uh, what, what, what sort of help can you offer them? I mean, is that uh, uh, that's up your is that up your alley? Is that a phone call that oh, they should be making to you? And, well, and give me an example of what's an example of an obstacle that they would face that their employees would face. I, I'm not sure that I'm qualified to answer that. Uh, to to okay. be real honest, but uh, uh, I, I would presume that some of the challenges that they face are a, a lot of the time probably wrapped up in, in their backgrounds as well. I mean, we're talking about a lot of mm-hmm. former law enforcement, former military that become part of these corporate security teams. Mm-hmm. And so just like I'm carrying a lot of my own um, stuff from my law enforcement career into what I'm doing now in the private world. Um, so too are they. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I imagine that that presents some challenges. Well, so let's say, um, let's say we have an issue with excessive force or whatever that may be. There are, there are things that we can do and discuss, um, whether in group settings or one-on-one with that person that can help reduce the risk. I mean, really that's, that's ultimately what coaching and resiliency from a financial business standpoint is all about is reducing risk and liability. Because if you have guys who are showing up and they smell like alcohol, that's a problem. If they, if they stink of alcohol in the morning when they get there on the shift because they've been up till three and shift starts at eight, you know you got some issues. Excessive force is always, it seems it's always an issue across the board. Sometimes it's uh, smaller things like, and, and I normally really dislike the word occupational hazard, um, but let's say it's something of an occupational hazard where they had to witness or make a decision that resulted in more trauma. And so we can reduce that, you know, fairly quickly. And and with the defense contractors, you have to remember that a lot of this is reconnaissance and surveillance, um, drone work and things of those nature. And so they are actively participating in, let's just call it wartime activity from a computer in Missouri. 
or a computer in Florida or Texas or California that's halfway around the world. And so we really have to remember that just because we're not physically present when bad things happen doesn't mean that we're not exposed to the trauma. Yeah. Excellent. So, so the, again, right. the, the, the legal attorney answer is it depends. It depends on, on company needs and, and what they're trying to accomplish. Awesome. Well, I would uh, certainly encourage um, anybody uh, to, to reach out to Lauren. You know, if you've got a, a unique situation um, to talk about, obviously Lauren is well suited to respond to those things. And so, uh, well, it's been fun. Three sessions. We've talked a lot. Um, we've uh, we've unpacked a lot here. It's good stuff. Uh, is there anything that we've missed? Anything we've left out? Anything you really just had a burning desire to talk about, or any closing thoughts? I think the only thing that that I regret leaving out of section two um, and and closing thoughts on this is is the suicide discussion. And I'll say this because I want to set people's mind at ease at least a little bit. So there is a huge spectrum of suicide. Okay, now considering that suicide numbers outweigh line of duty numbers, I feel at least obligated to say this in the last couple of minutes. So in the spectrum of suicide. There is ambivalence toward life on one end where I really just could not give a shit if I died today. I don't have an active plan, but if I die in a car wreck on the way home, I'll be okay with that. Okay. Mm. On the other end of the spectrum is five o'clock, my favorite firearm uh, under a tree in the pasture with a note on the dashboard. Okay. Very specific, detailed, active suicidal ideation, passive versus active. Okay. A lot of you live in the ambivalence toward life spectrum on the passive side, and that's totally normal for everything that you have been through. So if you go see a provider or if you're ever talking to a coworker about suicidal thoughts or whatever that may be, you need to clarify what you mean because you may say yes to suicidal ideation and you just mean I'm okay with dying in a car wreck on the way home. Your provider may hear, oh, he's having suicidal thoughts. Gosh, we probably need to to get somebody else involved. The other way that this is going to help is when you talk to your fellow officers about it, I would ask them, you know, if you did it, how are you going to do it? Do you have a plan? Do you have a time, a place, a means? And if they kind of hem-haw around and, and maybe the next sentence is um, blah, 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 but yeah, my, my, we're going on a Boy Scout camp out next weekend. That is a future-oriented plan. That means that they're in ambivalence and that they don't actually have an active date or time. They have not narrowed anything down to actually execute that plan. And so I would really clarify. And and um, one thing that I asked a veteran of mine one time, he had gotten in trouble, had unaddressed trauma for years and, and um, ended up in a road rage incident that resulted in two assault and battery charges with a deadly weapon and one leaving the scene of an accident because he drove, he ran a car off the road. So during treatment after this happens, and, and that's what brought him in, he said, you know, I really just could not give a fuck anymore. I I'm a, I mean, I'm getting more su- suicidal with each and every passing day. And so if suicide is our 10, I said, how would you do it if you were going to do it? If this is our 10? And he said, I would just drive off a bridge. And I said, okay, how are we going to know when you and I can no longer handle that? How are, you, how are we going to know when you actually need help? How will we know when you're getting closer to actually implementing the plan? And he said, I'd stop wearing my seatbelt. So we put that at about an eight. And we make the agreement, again, the therapeutic alliance. The agreement is you and I, in full disclosure, you have to tell me, you and I, in full disclosure, can handle everything from a zero to an eight. 
That is not a problem. If we hit the point where we're at an eight and you are no longer wearing your seatbelt over the bridge, then we need to get extra support. We need to consider a, a, um, a stay in an acute center or we need to identify exactly what else we can do to keep you from committing suicide. And so when you think about how you communicate with people, it's not just, do you feel like, do you feel like killing yourself? Because they're obviously going to say no. Everybody is going to say no to that in law enforcement. But when you say, do you just not care about living anymore? They'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done with it. I'm over it. Um, you know, I have a plan. This is who's going to take my kids. You know, my will is set up, those kinds of things. And, and don't be afraid to have that open dialogue. You're not planting seeds that they haven't already thought of. Um, I am really, really assertive about it. And I tell my guys that in the first session or two, and I explain the spectrum of trauma and I explain the agreement and that I will advocate for them to the very, very, very best of my ability and that we will find the very best care if we ever hit that eight. But they have to be honest with me. I can't do anything for them if they are not honest with me. And so in your law enforcement world, considering the growth with suicide and the numbers where they are, you all need to be clarifying with one another. You need to be communicating openly and you need to say, where are you on the spectrum? Are you living in passive suicidal ideation? If you are, that's fine. Are you living in active suicidal ideation where you just want it to be over as quickly as possible? That's a good distinction to make. Yeah, it is. And providers don't do a good enough job at that. They just ask the question and a lot of providers freak out when when they get the answer. Um, and that's on them. That's on them for not being comfortable enough with the topic to discuss it openly. That's a provider flaw. Yeah. And another area of which it demonstrates their lack of understanding of the yes. clientele in that profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So don't forget that. Awesome. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for being on. You're welcome. We'll (laughs) see what we can cover. You're welcome. We'll (laughs) see what we can cover in next session. (laughs) All right. Well, why don't you remind everybody on our way out um, how they can contact you? Where do they find you and get in touch? Sure. So if you have a specific question, the easiest way is is just through email, office at laurenrich.net. Um, I try to be diligent and respond within a couple of days. You can always call me. That's hard. I'm most, most of the time I'm in session. Um, and then you can follow and, and anonymously follow and get information and, and mental health answers on YouTube um, or on the face space. And I think I'm on parlor. They tell me I'm on, par- I'm on parlor. I don't know how to work it, but I'm on it. <laughs> is parlor even back yet? <laughs> I don't know. This, uh, I think the site is, but um, the app isn't. And I'm sure once this airs, oh, yeah, I'll be sure. banned from that too. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. All right. Well, we'll both be banned together. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, it's awesome. Everybody, thanks for checking out the Public Safety Innovators podcast. And as always, stay innovative. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the end of the show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review at psi.chat forward slash review. I would love to hear your feedback and it will also help other public safety innovators like yourself find the show. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode. Just go to psi.chat, click on episodes and search this episode number and you'll find all the links, descriptions and resources we talked about. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and you'll be notified when the next episode is live. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you guys on the next episode.